welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 36 with Bart Copeland, CEO of ActiveState. If you've ever installed Python, Perl, or Tickle on a Windows workstation, there's a pretty good chance you use the ActiveState installer and distribution. ActiveState's one of the oldest open source companies in existence. The founder was Dick Hart, who some of you might know as one of the editors of the OAuth 2 specifications, among other notable achievements. This episode is the first one we're publishing that was recorded in person at the OpenCore Summit. If you're a fan of the podcast, you heard Joe Jacks a few episodes back describing the event, which did not disappoint. Don't miss the next one if you can get to San Francisco, especially if you're a founder or entrepreneur interested in open source software development. ActiveState made some major pivots, although I think they ended up returning to their roots. It's a pretty fascinating story. ActiveState made some major pivots, although I think they ended up returning to their roots. It's a really fascinating story. So without further ado, here we go. Bart, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. ActiveState was founded in 1997, which makes it one of the oldest companies we've interviewed so far. It was acquired by Sophos, I guess, in in the 2000s, and then it was bought out by management. Just focusing on what happened after the acquisition, can you take us back to that time after the buyout happened and how you refocus the company? It's a really good question, Mike, but I should start with, in order to understand the refocus, we need to understand a little bit of history of why ActiveState was acquired in the first place. So ActiveState started in 1997. It was all around open source, building specifically language distributions around open source for the developers. The developers had needs specifically around Perl. Then anti-spam became a huge problem. ActiveState came up with an anti-spam solution called Perl MX, and that got the interest of Sophos. Sophos acquired all of ActiveState, but Sophos really wanted the Perl MX product, which eventually became pure message under Sophos. The CEO of Sophos had a lot of affinity and pride and admiration for all of ActiveState, and the other team the language distribution team, was dormant within Sophos, and he did not want to do anything to hurt that team. So that's where I got involved. And I was an early investor in ActiveState, but wasn't part of management. But then Steve Mumford, the CEO of Sophos, contacted me, and I, with a couple of other, a few other outside investors, we acquired the team, the technology, the customers, and the ActiveState brand. And What we wanted to do, leaving Sophos, is we wanted to do the next great thing. We often said, we want to do the next peer message. And so that started us on what we refer to as Chapter 2 or Version 2.0 of ActiveState. So 1.0 was 1997 to 2003. And then 2.0 was after the dormant period for 2003 to 2006. In 2006, that's when we started ActiveState 2.0. So... Maybe before I go on, is that, that does that give you a good grounding of? Sure. And what was the plan when you bought it out? There was two key plans. The first key plan was we need to extract ourselves from Sophos. So there was all this infrastructure and technology overlap that we needed to extract ourselves from. So that was the first plan. The second plan was let's go do the next great thing, and that's what we were going to do. So our team, I think at the time, we were about sixteen people or so. And the one other key caveat. And out of all this is I wanted to do it organically. I didn't want to raise a bunch of money. 
I said, let's do this the good old-fashioned way. Let's drive revenue. Let's reinvest that revenue or profits into growing even further. So that was what we embarked on. Would you say that you're similar to Anaconda or Red Hat making an open source software distribution consumable by the enterprise by providing reps and warranties and liability protection and patches and aligning with the enterprise procurement process? Yeah. So the short answer is, I'm going to give you two answers, the short answer and the longer answer. The short answer is I say, we do the same thing that Red Hat does for Linux, but we do it for open source programming languages. So we have Red Hat Enterprise Linux or RHEL, and it's an enterprise-grade distribution of Linux. We have enterprise-grade distributions for Perl, Tickle, and Python, and there's a lot more we're doing there. So that's the short answer. The longer answer is our whole mantra at Active State is twofold. Mantra one, number one is making open source easy for the enterprise. Mantra number two is making open source that just works for developers. And so when it comes to open source runtimes, whether you're the enterprise or the developer, there's different needs. But if you look at the complexity it is today to build a language distribution from an open source ecosystem and have that consistency across operating systems, managing all the dependencies, managing the security issues, managing the license issues, and then keeping it updated and making it really easy to deploy and share with other developers, making it really easy to move that distribution from your dev environment to your test environment or your staging environment or to your production environment. It's not easy. And so we do a number of things that make it easy, as well as the indemnification that you talk to. So there's, there's really two audiences, the developer audience, and they have their needs. And then there's the enterprise audience, and they have their needs. And our, our goal is to meet both audiences' needs. So from a revenue perspective, what are the most important products and which products do you think are the most promising for future growth? I talked about versions or chapters of Active State. So under chapter one, the most important product in terms of revenue potential and growth was Perl MX product. Under chapter two, it was the Staccato product. The Staccato was our private PaaS offering. That product was sold to HPE in 2015. However, under Chapter 3, it's our language distributions product. But here's the, the important thing to recognize, Mike. Under Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, and under Chapter 3, this has been a steady, growing business, our language distribution business. What we're doing different under Chapter 3 is we're trying to grow our business so that it doesn't bifurcate. Because if you notice in Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, we ended up with two business units. In Chapter 1, we had the language distribution business, and we had the Perl MX business. Under Chapter 2, we had the language distribution business, and then this product called Staccato, which I touched on briefly. So we ended up with two business units under Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. And I'd, I really felt it was important for us as a company going forward under Chapter 3 is Let's have a unified product offering, no bifurcated businesses or two business unit. So our real growth opportunity and potential for Active State going forward is around this whole area, what we refer to as open source language automation. This is a category that we're leading in, is bringing automation to your open source runtime. And as you know, Mike, in the whole open source ecosystem today, there is a lot of movement towards bringing automation to the software development lifecycle. We are touching on one aspect of that, and that's the open source runtime. 
why this is so important and why we see this as a huge opportunity, not only for Active State, for a lot of people in the open source ecosystem, is that developers today have lost the freedom to do what they do best, and that is write code. Developers today are spending more time doing things other than writing code. They're dealing with security issues. They're dealing with license compliance issues. They're dealing with IT compliance issues. They're dealing with bug fixes. And it's known that developers are losing their efficiency in doing what they do best. Furthermore, developers are not able to use the best tools to do the job. What we're trying to do as a company is to help free up developers so they have the right tools to do the best job, and they're doing what they do best and love to do, and that's just writing code. So in summary to your question of where is the biggest potential for active state, it's around this whole category that we have created called open source language automation. ActiveState's serving many large customers, but the market for programming language is a very horizontal market. Probably every company on, on the planet can use it. Do you segment the market in, in any way? We do and we don't. So there's two, ways, uh, there's two ways we look at the market. The first way we look at the market is we think of the developer and we think of the large enterprise. And so we're constantly thinking about, and that's, so what we talk about, we, at ActiveState, we talk about bottom-up and top-down. So bottom-up is we think of the developer and how do we create an experience for them, to, where it's very easy for them to consume our products and use them in working with us quickly. And then the top-down is the developer is using our product, brings it into an enterprise, they bring it to their boss and they say to their boss, you know, I really like to use the ActiveState platform in, in greater detail at the job. And so that, that's the top down. It brings in the decision maker. It brings the buyer. So that is one way we look at the market. The other way we look at the market is in terms of verticals, who has the greatest affinity for the types of solutions we build and sell. And historically and going forward today, we've had a lot of success in obviously high tech. We've had a lot of success in banking and finance. We've had a lot of success in aerospace and defense. We've had a lot of success in insurance. And we've had a lot of success in manufacturing. Whereas we haven't had a lot of success, for example, in healthcare, to give you an example where we haven't success. But on the whole, though, we don't do a lot of segmentations because you're right, it's a very horizontal play for us. And what we try to do is we try to make our software as accessible to as many developers as we can globally throughout the planet. We have downloads all over the planet. The number one download is the U.S. And I think if after that, our downloads are really big in China and Japan and then in Europe. So hopefully that gives you an idea of how we look at the marketplace. And I guess if I were really aware to my, my marketing hat, we could do a lot more segmentation that we're doing than that we're not doing. So drilling down into the team a little bit, how do you organize the sales effort for such a global market? And how is that sort of adjusted over the years? So the first thing is actually the adjustment has been the same under all versions of Active State or all chapters of Active State 1, 2, and 3. The selling motion has been the same. The selling motion from a sales organization is effectively comprised of account managers, account executives, and customer success managers, and inside sales reps. And depending on where you are in the selling cycle, involves those individuals. So typically what happens 
we, and I get the other aspect is sales engineers. So we get a potential opportunity. Usually it comes from a developer or a group of developers using our solution within an organization. That then leads to greater interest into going from the free version to a paid version. That involves then an account executive with a sales engineer. They work together on, and we do this all over the phone. All our selling is done over the phone. Rarely do we go on-prem to an organization. It's done over the phone or through a series of video conferencing, video conference calls. Then relationship is made. A deal is consummated. All our deals are based on annual subscriptions. It's a recurring revenue model. Once the deal closes, then it goes to our customer success manager. The customer success manager with her team, their job is to make the customer successful. Then typically, depending on the account, then there's an account manager that is, uh, that is brought in to nurture and manage the account and renew it and work with the account to help them in other areas of their business where our solutions can help them. And that's typically the cycle that we work on. Now, that is for the enterprise tier. One thing that I haven't touched on, uh, Mike, is that we not only have an enterprise tier, we also have a lower tier pricing structures. We have five tiers. We have the community tier, which is free, but then we have the coder tier, the team tier, and the business tier, and the enterprise tier. And for the coder tier, team tier, and business tier, that's handled by an inside sales group that deal with the uh, smaller price point products. I noticed that you have an OEM license. Is that a material part of your business, and how did that come about? So if you look at, um, at our business today, at the enterprise level, about 50% of the revenue at the enterprise level is enterprise subscriptions, and the other 50% is OEM. So the way it came about is that when you get a distribution supported from Active State, there's two ways you can consume that distribution. One way is you consume it internally, and you consume it internally for all of your internal dev practices or dev applications that are enterprise-wide. However, another way you can consume our distributions is you bundle it with your product and you sell that bundle to your end users. So for example, you may have a product that requires a Python language distribution to run your your Python product on your customers' systems. So then we OEM our language distribution as part of a bundle. And that's how it came about. It's a sizable portion of our business, the OEM portion. Are there other partnerships that you think are important to ActiveState? So going forward with the ActiveState platform around open source language automation, we feel the partnerships that are really important is right now looking at the whole landscape around CI/CD, around what GitHub and GitLab are doing and what the cloud providers are doing, specifically AWS, Microsoft, Azure, and Google with Google Cloud Platform. As well as we look, we watch IBM Cloud. It's kind of the number four cloud player. So those are the three key partnerships we're looking at, or areas that we are concentrating aggressively on. There is, an, and I would say there's a, another area, a fourth area of a bunch of miscellaneous groups that we feel are important. So, for example, we feel it's very important to play well in the whole Red Hat ecosystem, and another ecosystem we feel it's important to play well is in the VMware ecosystem. And again, and another very important area, which is, is it more around standardization, is the Docker ecosystem or the containerization ecosystem to make it very easy to consume our distributions as containers. You mentioned a few tiers of product. 
Would you consider active states distributions to be open core? Absolutely. Yes. So if you look at what comes off of the platform, the active state platform is all about building your language distribution, certifying it, and resolving it. So when I say building, you decide which packages you want from the open source ecosystem. You decide which of the language runtime you want to use from the open source ecosystem. So by for a example, stick to Python. You want Python 3.7. You want 35 packages from PyPI. You bring that all in. That's all open source. We then build it for you for the, lang- the operating systems you care about. You have three choices, Windows, Linux, and Mac. You build it for the operating systems you want. That then is downloaded as, it's created as a distribution. And that entire distribution, sorry, the, the core of the, uh, the distribution is open core because it's relying on all the open source licenses that exist and we preserve that. Once you've built the distribution, then we certify it and we check for any dependency hell issues, what I refer to as dependency hell. We, refer, we check for any security violations. We check for any license issues that you may have decided as a user, there's certain licenses you don't want. Then the other thing we do is we resolve any issues that come up automatically in the background. So you've got this distribution on the ActiveState platform, and the result is a dependency breaks or there's a CVE threat. We fix that automatically, and then we alert you. Where I'm going with this in the, in the spirit of your question, all of that is still open core. It's all based on all the open source ecosystem. But the platform itself is closed core. You know, that's the, the closed proprietary layer on the outside. So over the years, have you significantly adapted your pricing strategy or has it been relatively stable? Let's just talk about the, the distributions, which you're yeah. still in. Yeah. The distribution business has been relatively stable. The key thing that's different is historically we've been distribution as a service. You come to ActiveState and we provide you a distribution as a service. Now we've evolved the business where it's you self-serve with the platform and build your own distribution. So it's a software as a service solution. The pricing for the most part is the same, but we're offering a lot more for the same price now under the ActiveState platform. One of our guests previously made the case that it's better to sell open source software that someone else writes because otherwise you're funding engineers who are basically not billable. Would you agree with that? Yes, but I think you have to find a fine balance because if you are taking, always taking and not giving, that's not good. (laughs) From my perspective, you have to have a very fine balance of how you're dealing with the open source ecosystems. There are new programming languages every year, it seems. I'm guessing if you're a new programmer, you're not going to start learning Perl or Tickle. Has that made these products more valuable, maybe as you face less competition in the tools market? I believe it makes it more value for two reasons. The first reason is what you've mentioned, is that we have a lot of legacy languages that we support that is very important to the enterprise. Because, for example, and you'll some of your uh, listeners may laugh at this, is that we support today Perl 512. We're at Perl 528, but we have enterprises that have applications in production and we support 512 for them because it's easier for them to, if we support Perl 512, then for them to migrate to 528. So in that sense, that's very valuable to us and valuable to our customers. But at the same time, 
these same customers are saying, for new applications, for greenfield applications, we need to use the new languages. And can we go to ActiveState to get the new languages? So our goal eventually is with the ActiveState platform is to support any language that our customers want to use. We're not there yet, but that's the vision for the ActiveState platform. Which languages do you think are maybe in sooner than, than later? Great question. So right now we've got Perl, Tickle, and Python. On our roadmap for coming up here is JavaScript and Ruby and Java. And then uh, most likely we're looking at PHP, R, Elm, Rust. These are some of the languages that are on our, and on, our, on our radar. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to building the team? Does location weigh into the hiring equation or are you willing to use remote people? That's a really good question. So my philosophy is we go where the talent is. We don't force the talent to come to us. So we, our company, about, what is it today? I think about it, just under two-thirds are in our head office in Vancouver, but I think it's getting closer to 50%. The other 50% are distributed throughout North America. So our philosophy is, as I said, we go where the talent is. And as a result, uh, especially on the development side, we are hiring developers wherever the talent is. And so we have developers spanning four different time zones from West Coast all the way to Halifax, which is the one hour further than the, the East Coast time. But we try to bookend it within those time zones because we haven't yet expanded to either the Asian market or the um, European market just because of the collaboration. We want to be able to collaborate in real time. We use Slack aggressively as an organization. So the nut of your question is we are very open to a distributed organization. But we think we're doing a really good job of managing a distributed organization. There's a number of things we do to include all of our virtual activators. We call ourselves activators for Active State at Active State. And we refer to our remote activators as virtual activators or remotes. And so here's some things we do to make them feel inclusive. So we use Slack aggressively. Most of our Slack channels are all public within the company. So everybody can see what everybody's doing. And there's freedom to lurk. There's freedom to participate. We have a regular company meetings once a month with the entire company with video on. We also you know, really encourage video meetings all the time. So every morning, all the teams, the various teams have daily stand-ups, the agile methodology. All those daily stand-ups are done with video or video conferencing. We also uh, try to have all our activators at least twice a year come to head office. So we fly everybody in. So we have them all together so they can build relationships and cross-pollinate. We also, um, as many tech companies, have a lot of nice fringe benefits like uh, free drinks, free food. We bring in a warm lunch every Friday. We call it Free Lunch Friday. So what we do to make the... So unfortunately, our remote activators don't have access to that. So what we do is we uh, send them a food package once a month with Amazon Prime. And we just say, and I'm not sure exactly how we do it. I'm not involved with it myself, but we actually ask them what they would like and we arrange it on Amazon Prime and we deliver it to their homes. And then the other thing we do is various members of the remote team fly up on a regular basis to interact with the head office as well. So these are some of the things we do to promote an inclusive environment and also the needs to grow because it's very hard, given this, the type of work that we're doing, to find all that talent in Vancouver. I would say it's impossible. It's not, not very hard. It's impossible. As a sort of 
Python hacker myself over the years. I've been on the Active State site, you know, a number of times looking at code examples and how do you choose which efforts to invest in and, you know, where, where, how do you invest, I guess, the R&D or community work that you do? How do you prioritize it? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's, I don't have a good answer for you on that. At the end of the day, we have to find a balance between investing in developers and solutions for developers and meeting their needs and balance that with ultimately the enterprise because they long-term pay the bills and we need a healthy balance there. One of the things I should touch on, Mike, is that if you look at Active State through its entire 20-year journey, there's something common through that 20-year journey. And that commonality is as follows. Every single product has been based on open source. Every single product has been built and designed with the developer in mind. And every single product has been built with a developer at the enterprise in mind. And if you take the intersection of those three, that's our sweet spot. That's where we make money. So we're constantly trying to find the balance because we don't want ever, because we are a company that's growing organically, we don't have outside money. We have to rely on our hard work and creating a happy balance between developers who don't want to pay for things, which we're fine with, but finding and giving them those solutions that they're free to use and then find that happy balance with developers in the enterprise who are prepared to pay for what we offer. So you're 20 years in, which is not something a lot of tech companies can say. How far do you look ahead to the future? Are you looking 20 years out for another? I look in three to five year timeframes because if you look at Active State's history, under Active State 1.0, we were focused on Perl, the high rapid growth of Perl and the anti-spam product problem or the anti-spam problem under Active State 2.0. Again, we were focused on language distributions and we were focused on the whole cloud computing space and specifically for us, platform as a service. Now we're focused on open source language automation and helping make software really work well for developers in the next three to five years. And because tech moves so fast, the industry is so vibrant and so exciting. And I often say to younger developers, younger people getting into tech, because I've been in it now for 30 years, I say, we are still in the early inning, early innings. We're like an inning two. And as somebody said to me, this is a hundred year cycle we're in right now in, in tech. And we're still in the, we're in 20 years or so, right? We got a lot to do. It's just, it's just starting to get exciting. I'm, I'm kind of looking here. I'm at the the latter part of my career, and I was, I'm looking at my two young sons who are just starting their career, and I want to do it all over again because I think it's going to get even more exciting. But the point I'm trying to make here, Mike, it's very hard to look beyond three to five years in my view. So we right now are focused on this audacious goal of building a platform for open source runtimes and specifically solving the problem around open source language automation. That's our focus. That's a three to five year plan. We're going to deliver on that, and then we'll regroup again. Quick question on governance. So as a bootstrap company, do you have a board of directors? And, and sort of what does the governance look like yeah. in a bootstrap company? So we're a bootstrap company. By definition, that means we're a private company. So uh, the company is owned by its employees and some key shareholders. And I believe in good corporate governance, and there is a board. The board is comprised of some of the key shareholders. It's a very small board. I think it's important as a CEO that you get external advice. 
So in addition to having a board, because that's one form of advice, I have a group of advisors that advise me as well and advise my leadership team. And I think that's very important. I think as a bootstrap company, you shouldn't do things in isolation. It's very important that you have individuals that are not in the trees with you, and they can constantly spot and say, hey, Bart, have you considered this? Or what about that? And so there is three, uh, there's four of us on the board, and then I have uh, three other advisors who are not part of the board, but advise me one-on-one. Last question. Any advice for new entrepreneurs who are launching a business around an open source software project? Oh, that's a good question, Mike. I think there's a general advice and then there's advice specific to open source. The general advice that I give, and I I do a lot of angel investing with young entrepreneurs and and invest in, uh, in small, promising individuals and companies. The advice I give is persistence and perseverance and focus. If you believe on something and believe in something, stay at it. Don't lose your focus. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pivot. But if you look at people who are successful, it's about perseverance and persistence. So that's the general advice. As far as open source is concerned, I think my advice is, I love open source. It is, it is the future. When I first started an open source, people saying, this is a crazy, this is crazy. Why are you doing open source? There's no future in it. Now, open source is one. There is so much power in collaboration in open source. And, and my advice is, if you are not using open source, then there's something wrong with your company. You should be using open source. It's the way to go. It is the de facto standard to build a great organization. Bart, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. It's been great. Thanks to Bart and the Active State team for making this interview happen. Thank you, thank you to the Open Core Summit team for giving us a table at the event to promote the podcast and for giving up their sponsorship room a few times, which was the quietest place we could find to record. Please support the event. We need more events like this to grow the industry and to share our experiences in person. Transcription and episode audio can be found on opensourceunderdogs.com. Music from Brooke Brafree and Chris Zabriski. Audio editing by Inez Satenji. Production assistance and transcription by Natalie Lau. Operational support from William Lau. Have comments? Tweet at us. Our Twitter handle is at FOSS Podcast. That's F-O-S-S Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast and add it to your favorites on your podcast app. That helps us get the word out. Next week, we have Ben Golub from Storage, who will take us through the first open-source blockchain business model. Until then, thanks for listening.